Coming to you live. Live. And podcasting around the globe. You're listening to the Deal Farm Podcast. Guaranteed to tickle your real estate loving ear holes. And now, here's your host, world-renowned TV heartthrob and investor extraordinaire, Ken Corsini. Hey, this is Ken Corsini with the Best Deal Ever show. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Frank Cava. Frank, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Ken. How are you? Good. Good to see you, brother. Sorry I missed you last week. It's funny. We're in the same mastermind, and somehow we just never crossed paths. It's busy. It is busy. It's a little, it's a little bit crazy, but it was, it was a good one for what I could tell. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, markets, everybody's a little nervous in the market just with deal flow and like, where are we in the economy? But, um, you know, that's, that's why you go to a mastermind. You talk to other people who are having the same issues you're having. That's exactly right. Figure out what, what, what's working for somebody and maybe not working for somebody else. So talk to us for a second. What you're in Virginia, you're in, uh, is Richmond, right? Yep. So I grew up in Florida. Um, and I moved to the DC Metro market when I was right out of college to work for a home builder. Cause this is going to come up when we talk about my best deal ever. Yeah. And, um, I moved in the, in the last downturn to central Virginia. I went to a place called Charlottesville. Oh, wow. And then when I started this business, there's just a lot more inventory in Richmond. Um, so I ended up moving to Richmond, uh, five and a half years ago and, um, I'm in Richmond, Virginia. Okay. I didn't realize that you lived in Charlottesville. That's probably a cooler town in terms of like experience, but. Just way more inventory in Richmond? It's very small. I actually think Charlottesville is a cool place. Yeah. But it's, a, it's a cool place to be married with a couple of kids. When you're single in your 30s, it's not a cool place. Like <laughs> it, was time, it was time to get out of there. Really? Well, it's a college town, right? So I guess when you're in your 30s, you're just feeling a little bit old at that point. Yeah. You, people look at you funny. So it was, uh, but Richmond's awesome. And, and Richmond is a lot. The cool thing about Richmond is this like we've got an arts college, and for years, people would come here, go to the arts college, and then they would move. They would move to cooler cities. They moved to Nashville or Austin, Texas, Charleston, South Carolina, or New York, right? But like you know this, with reality TV, it's kind of changed. People have become foodies, and people are more into things than they ever were in the past. And I think that has a very positive effect on our marketplace because all these people that used to move stay. Now oh, we have wow. all this cool art. We have all this cool food. We've got like really cool stuff and it's cheap. Like it flies way under the radar compared to like a Nashville or one of those big cities that you'll, you'll fly into. We got all the same stuff here. Wow. That's interesting. What is the population of Richmond, by the way? The MSA is 1.2 million. Richmond proper is like 300,000. Okay. That's still bigger than I thought. 1.2 million. That's a good size city. Yeah. It's like the top 50 city, but it's like compared to like a San Diego or an LA or like an Austin, it's way smaller, but yeah. it's, it's a cool place. Yeah. What's funny. My brother lives in Lynchburg. So a lot of times I'll fly into, into Richmond. It's gorgeous. Man, if you ever fly into the, the Virginia in general in the fall, I mean, it's just spectacular. It's a gorgeous place to live. I grew up in hot and humid South Florida. So we got all four seasons. You only sweat three and a half months a year here. It's great. <laughs> and, it's, and it's got a lot of cool stuff, but it's got, it's got the seasons, but you know, we've got snow two, three, four times a year, but we don't get 30 inches of it. Like they'll get in New York. You get the fun snow, not like the annoying, I can't work snow. You get three days off a year that you just don't know when they're going to be because of sleet and snow. Yeah. So it's like, all right, cool. I needed a day off anyways. Yeah. So talk to us about your business. I know that you've, you've got a monster business and you do a little bit of everything, right? I mean, uh, fix and flip and wholesaling and buy and hold all of the yep. above. 
Yep. And so we're going to talk about this in a minute, but I, I went to work for a home builder out of college mm-hmm. and I was an executive by the time I left. In 2009, I was just absolutely sick of firing people and being told what to do by corporate. It was a pretty miserable time being home building. And I, I mean, I'm always up for a challenge. I'm like, all right, screw it. If I can quit my job, I can go out and I can make money in this market. And if I can figure out how to make money in this market, I can probably thrive long term. Yeah. So at first we start buying things off the MLS and we would just fix them and sell them kind of like what my background was. But as the MLS got tighter, we started to have to go to direct to seller. So, you know, 10 years in, we do direct to seller advertising and marketing. We buy houses and then we reposition them into a couple of ways. We buy them, we fix them, and then we sell them. We buy them, we fix them, we keep them as rentals or we get it under contract and we assign the contract through a wholesale. So pretty traditional. And then we have bolt-on businesses. So we also offer property management now. We have over 200 doors that we own personally. So we manage those in-house, plus we have outside owners that we manage for, um, a couple of dozen. And then we have um, headhunting. And the reason we have headhunting is because it's so hard to find good people in any business. So I had a company up in New York that did it for a while, but I hired one of their people. He had a non-compete, so he and I just sat down, figured out how to build it, and we find found somebody else to run it, and um, that person hires people that are in our business. So they hire for us, but they also hire for other people that are in our business around the country. Really? I had no idea. It's funny, of all the different folks I've talked to in real estate and all the different ways you can bolt-on businesses, never heard of a bolt-on headhunting business. That's pretty awesome. But if you talk to anybody, what they tell you the number one issue is, is people. Totally. Yep. You're exactly right. I mean, th- even in our mastermind, half the people that need help with something, right, it's, it's always a hiring decision. So you're exactly right. It yep. makes a ton of sense. So is it one person kind of in the, in the headhunting space or do you have multiple people? We have one full-time person that runs it and we're very selective. We only work with certain clients and we only do a certain number at a time so we can keep it to one person. But we've always got one to two hires internally that we're working on. So he's hiring two, call it one and a half for us and maybe like another half dozen for others. Um, and, and one person can handle six to eight searches very easily. Yeah. So it, 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 it works very well. So what does your team look like, like right now? You've got a lot of different things going on. What, what's the size? We have 17 full-time people. And if you want, I can in 45 seconds cover it. Do it. All right. So we've got an admin staff, um, you know, someone who answers the phones and deals with like entering invoices. We have a bookkeeping um, department. We have a construction coordinator and a sales coordinator. And then we have um, a head of marketing who basically should be called a head of design who goes out, and makes all the selections. So all of our houses look great. We work with, um, you know, national people as well um, to get like the right contracts. And that all runs through her office. Um, I mentioned the headhunter and the really important stuff in this business is what does your sales and construction floor look like? We have a head of construction. Um, he's got the two administrative people, like the person who picks the selections and the person who does the starts and everything. And then there's two full-time project managers and we have about, call it 150 subcontractors that we write a check to every single month. Wow. So we, we, we're doing over a hundred. So we're like the, a top five builder new home builder in Richmond with our volume. So we, we've got a relatively decent sized business. And then on the sales side, we have a leads admin person who takes the calls, settlement coordinator, and then we have three full-time people who are um, answering phones, meeting with customers, and doing acquisitions and dispositions. Gotcha. So what's your primary model? Is it mostly fixing and flipping? Because that's a lot of subs. You must be doing a lot of construction. So... We're a direct-to-seller 
advertising and marketing company, um, my goal is to buy as many assets as humanly possible that we don't have to sell to somebody else. So we have a portfolio. We got almost 100,000 square feet of commercial space and roughly 200 rentals. So when you get to a point, I mean, it took me a decade because I bootstrapped this thing. and I'm going to talk to you about what that looked like today. But you get to a point where you don't have to sell anything. You can just continue to be profitable with the, the revenue your business generates. Mm -hmm. And we're not there yet, but we're probably two to three years away from that where we don't have to sell a thing. But wow. right now to generate revenue, we generate revenue through wholesale and we generate revenue through fix and flip. But again, I would rather just gobble up everything and just hold it. Sure. Yeah. But some, some houses lend themselves to fixing and flipping where the numbers just don't work from a buy and hold. So you make your cash flow there, but the number of the ones that do, and I imagine in a market like Richmond, there's probably a lot of inventory that makes sense from a buy and hold perspective. Yeah. It's a good diverse market. Um, we try and focus on the affordability sector. We started to do this about 12 to 18 months ago. There's a small slowdown in the market and we just said, screw it. We're going to be in like absolute home run locations. If we're going to go on the higher side, but in everything else, we're going to be in the affordability play. So we have some stuff that's in the threes and fours and we have some stuff that's in the sevens up to a million, but mostly uh, like 80% of our stuff is sub 300 and 85 is sub 400, but like, you know, we've got things in the 199s, mm -hmm. which is, which stands out here. Yeah. What, so what's a rent, typical rental look like for you? How much are you in a rental for and what are you getting for it? Just curious. Sure. So if you're going to get into the rental game, there's many ways you can do it. We're really good on the affordability or workforce housing sector. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, right now in today's economy, it's really hard to provide. Um, people have a hard time finding an affordable rent. So we, we, will, we accept Section 8 vouchers and we have like almost 85% of our portfolio that's on a Section 8 or wow. some type of a, an assistance voucher. Um, and what we do is we go in and we do all the CapEx, which if you don't know what that term means, basically we do all the hard work. Mm -hmm. We do the roofs, the windows, the floors. We, we, we gut the whole house and we redo everything that we can because once you do that, you're going to get a really good appraised value. And then once you get a good appraised value, then what you back into is you go and you get a bank loan and then you can rent it. So we do all the expensive stuff. We get most of our money back and then we find a good tenant and we retain those tenants. And year over year, we have a 93% renewal rate. Um, wow. It's, it's incredible. We have a 0% vacancy rate for like the fourth month in a row. Um, Holy cow. Yeah. And does that speak to your property management or does that speak to the market? Or both? I think it speaks a little bit to both. And here's why. We give people, people that are in the Section 8 program, it's built to come in and get out. But most people are there for a very, very, very long time and they never leave. Yep. I've had a woman, I don't go to a lot of houses, but I had a woman at a house I was at, she hugged me and she's like, I've been in the Section 8 program since the late 80s. This is the nicest one I've ever been in. I don't want you to ever evict me. I love it here. So I think it comes down to, we know how to screen and find the right tenants. We know how to renovate a home to a point. Ken, it's not as nice as the houses you and I live in. Sure. I mean, I've seen the houses you renovate on TV for sale. Those are nicer. Right. But these are nice, safe homes. And we really try to engender a, um, a sense of pride and rentership. And, and we do that. We encourage people, bring your friends over, have barbecues here, live in this house, mm -hmm. and you know, become part of the community. And when they do that, they don't move. And um, they become great residents. Yeah.
It's funny because I'm writing a blog on, on Section 8 right now because I'm thinking about the same things that I feel like our Section 8 tenants definitely stay longer than like a, just a regular retail tenant. I'm not sure why that is, but they, they get comfortable and it's, maybe it's a lot of hassle to move, but especially if you've created a nice environment for them, why would they move? It, it, I mean, if you want to dissect it a little bit, I was a renter in my, my low 20s, right? And the best deal ever that I'm going to talk to you about is I stopped being a renter at 24, 25 years old. I always knew I was a homeowner. Some people know they're not homeowners and they're renters. But mm -hmm. if you're renting to people like us, we're more complicated. We move more. We want to own. We don't want to rent. So we're going to rent for a period of our lives. But there's other people who are just happy to be renters. Mm -hmm. We like to find people that are happy to be renters and we like to exceed their expectations. And yeah. if we exceed their expectations, we, we raise the rents slowly over time, but we don't do anything egregious and they stay. Yeah. Yeah. And you, it's, it's so much, so much more profitable to keep a tenant, spend a little extra money on the, on the front end, keep them happy. Don't even raise rents that much. If you can just avoid turnovers because turnovers where you get nailed. This is probably a whole nother show, but we, what we do is we move somebody in and we don't raise the rent for the first two years. Oh, wow. Unless it, we somehow like something went crazy, but like 90% of the time we don't raise the rent for the, for the first two years, people will hunker down. And then for like, you know, a cup of coffee a day, we raise the rent that much per month, year over year. And, you know, it's three to four bucks a day, we'll raise it, which is an insignificant amount of money. And, you know, but they stay. But here's what does happen. You become more profitable. You get somebody who doesn't turn over, who takes care of the home. You, you lock up your finance and then you start collecting a little bit more rent and then boom, you've got yourself a nice little system. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's funny because most, most folks build their business around, you know, I'm going to create a bunch of cash by flipping houses and doing wholesale deals. And oh, by the way, here's my retirement plan. I'm going to do a couple buy and holds. You're sort of, you sort of flip the script. My, you know, your goal is let's build a giant portfolio of buy and holds. Oh, and if we need some cash, we'll do some flips and some wholesales. And long term, I mean, long term, I think that's, it's a no brainer if you look back. For the last, so we're, we're, 80% through this year, um, roughly. So if I was to say the last three years, we've done, call it 700 deals. We've profited on probably 30%, somewhere between 30 and 50%. We try and hold as much as we possibly can. Wow. Yeah. You're, well, you're creating a ridiculous portfolio that's going to be an amazing retirement plan for you long term. So out of all those deals, you know, obviously you do a tremendous volume there in Richmond. Is there, let's talk about the one, the one that stands out, you know, in your mind is your best deal ever. Perfect. So I mentioned earlier that I went to the University of Florida. I'm, I, I went to work for a builder. I'm sorry and, to hear that, by the way. Yeah. And many, yeah, you're a Georgia guy. <laughs> so most of the people who I talk to are like, what idiot moves from Florida to Virginia? And I did it with intent in mind. Um, the company that I went to work for was going to teach me how to be a home builder. And they were going to teach me if I was really good, how to estimate. And then if I was good at that, they were going to teach me how to sell and they would teach me how to manage. These are all skills that I've used to my advantage. But the thing that really was kind of the, the, the it, it kind of broke the, um, the tie, if you will, is they had an incentive program where if you were an employee of the company and you built yourself a house, they would give you a discount on the lumber package. It was like a 10% discount on the lumber package. It was like a three or $4,000 discount, which is an insignificant amount of money really. But what it was is it was just a little incentive of, hey, if you buy yourself a house and you 
build yourself a house, you're going to build wealth, you're going to be more stable as a person. And it, 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 the company promoted it. So it was one of the reasons I moved to Virginia for that. For that. And I kind of saw that as a goal. Mm -hmm. So I graduated college in uh, June of 1998. And this is relevant because you had to wait two years. So I built my house like I started construction like four days before two years was out of college. Like I knew that this was my goal. And what I did was I was broke. I had like $3,700 to my name. That was it. And I built a $350,000 house. So it was a, it was a really nice house. It was brand new. It was like 2,500 square feet. It had four bedrooms. It was this ridiculously cool house. Like it was friends of mine came over and they're like, this is nicer than the house your parents live in. Like it was ridiculous. But there was the catch. I couldn't build. I couldn't afford it. Like my monthly payment <laughs> was more than my gross take home. So like my gross take home was like 4000 a month and my mortgage was like five. So what I did was I said, screw it. I have an unfinished basement and I got three extra bedrooms. I'm renting them all out. And I rented out the bedrooms and the basement and I had enough money. I was making like 42 grand a year. So I, I rented it all out and I figured out how to cover the mortgage. And then in the two and a half to three years I lived there, I went from making 42 grand a year to much like almost three times that. So I slowly got rid of the roommates. But what I did was I just figured out a way to get in that house and pay for the house. And I knew it was a path to success. Mm -hmm. We've got a mutual friend named Billy Alvaro and he's a cursor. He's like, damn, yes. bro, you're a hustler when I told him that story because it was, um, it's a hustle. It's a hustle play. But it was a little bit risky, but I just knew that if I knew I wasn't, I would do anything it took to not default on that mortgage. Yeah. And that's what I did. But how did you this get was the mortgage? Is the question. What's that? How did you even get the mortgage to begin with? I don't know, man. I, I, I went in someplace and they said, I, a couple people told me no, but I found someone that said yes. So th this is, th so I, I'm going to kind of tell you what happened with this, right? Yeah. So, I, I did this whole entire thing. I think my first mortgage was like eight and a half percent and I had a second mortgage at like 12 and a half. Yeah. That's why it was so expensive. Yeah. And I moved in in 2000. But September 11th happened and if you don't remember this in 2001, mortgage rates dropped. September 11th was on a Tuesday and by Friday, mortgage had, mortgages had dropped like two to three points. They, they wanted to boost consumer confidence. So what I ended up doing was I had equity in the house by that point. And I went through and um, I refinanced. It closed like the first part of November of 2001. Mm -hmm. And I took these two really expensive mortgages. I combined them into one mortgage and I pulled out $50,000 in cash. And what happened was my payment went down by like a factor of almost, almost a half. Like I, I dropped the payment down that much. So for the first time in my life, I wasn't completely broke because I had money in the bank and my payment was now affordable because of things that happened. Um, so I'm going to kind of take this a few directions. I took that house. I used some of the equity. I bought an investment house that I held on to for a few years with a friend of mine. We sold that. And I made over a hundred grand on that deal. Then wow. I took those two houses and I combined it together. And what 29-year-old that's single doesn't need to live on 10 acres in an 8,000-square-foot house in a gated community? I did. So cool. I bought that entire house. It was 8,000 square feet. I was into that house for a very, you know, 850 grand. And I sold it for 1.5 million. Um, and I did, so but with having, I don't know, three, 
$4,000 in my checking account, three moves as a homeowner and living in a home. And because the government gives you an, will give you some assistance on tax. If you don't exceed, uh, there, there, there's a benefit as a homeowner. If you live in a house and you live in your primary residence and you make under 250 grand, you don't have to pay taxes on it. So basically a couple of times this happened and I didn't have to pay taxes because it fit. And that was the goal, right? Mm -hmm. So by the age of 30, I was a millionaire because of those three houses. Oh my gosh. Wait, and so then when I did, I had, I had this great job and I made a lot of money there and I saved a bunch of money, but I was miserable at 34, but I had just made a million bucks on three houses, you know, a little plus or minus. And then I had some money from my other job and I quit. And what I did is I used these three things to be kind of the launching point for my business that now owns well over 200 houses, has you know 17 employees, but that's how it started. So I thought that was a good deal. It turned me into a multimillionaire. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the root deal, the deal sort of at the bottom that holds everything up. So we, we, we got a photo wall when you walk into our office, we had all kinds of cool stuff in the office and there's like a, a gallery wall and there's a picture that's like this big. It's in the middle, it's that first house. Really? It was a seed that, it was, it was a seed that started it all. Sure. Now, did you, so you refied it, pulled out some money. Did you then turn around and sell it or are you still holding that house or when did you eventually sell that house? Um, I sold it in like 2003 and that's when I, I did that 8,000 square foot monster. And did you build that one or you, you, it was an existing house? I built it. You built it. And so again, yep. your, your skills from work translated, you know, to the, to the side here yep. and you probably built it and immediately created equity just by the fact that you built it yourself. And how long do you live in that house? Um, 2004 till about two, three and a half, three years. Little okay. Three, yeah. And then, and that's the one that you sold for 1.5 million. Correct. Goodness gracious. Yep. That's unbelievable. I mean, it was ballsy and it was scary. Like there was no way in hell I could afford any of these houses, but I knew I had the wind at my back with, with my mortgage and I, I had a plan. And yeah. The plan was like, I don't, I, I live in a much smaller house now. But the plan was, I want to make money on these houses and I want to capitalize on the fact that the government rewards you for owning a house and living in it and paying interest and taxes. And that's the plan. So you look at what the rules are and you say, how can I function within the rules and capitalize? And that's what yeah. I did. Yeah. Basically flip the house you're living in, not pay taxes on it and keep flipping up. That's it. That's amazing, man. So- so how is this, I mean, this is how you started your business. How do you think that this experience has shaped the way you do business? It kind of did, every, it's kind of everything, right? I mean, let's, let's talk about why did I leave Florida, which is a great place to live for Virginia. Like who's ever heard of Virginia that comes from Florida, right. but I saw opportunity there. And yeah. I thought that my skill set fit very well with the company that I was going to work for. Um, I had a degree in construction management. They were going to hire me to be a construction manager. And most of the people that they hired were like English and business majors. I knew point blank that if I went up there to work and I worked really, really hard, I was going to distinguish myself. And I did. Hmm. I knew they would cross train me in sales. I've won every sales contest I've entered since I was five. So I knew <laughs> that I could sell. So I was like, if I do really well in construction, they'll put me in sales. I'll have some insight knowledge that other people won't have and I'm going to do great in that. And if I, and I'll work really hard. So I did. So I, 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 I'm not that smart, but I'm smart enough to realize I'm not that smart. I'm humble enough to realize it. And I'm also realizing here is where I may be above average. 
and I'm going to find an incubation chamber that allows me to be above average and really excels with what I do well, and I'm going to push it. And here's an example, right? In 2009, I quit my job. I've already told you that I had some money because I flipped a couple of houses and I I'd stocked away a bunch of cash in, at work. I mean, I was making like a half a million bucks a year by the end, which is not an insignificant amount of money. So, and I lived on like a hundred thousand a year. So I, I stashed cash, but in 09, I was miserable and I just was heart first and quit. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to a marketplace where there's not a lot of competition. Now, back in 2009, the hedge funds hadn't entered the world yet. You could buy stuff right off the MLS. I was competing against people that ran their businesses out of the back of a truck. Mm -hmm. I could do well in this space. And 10 years in, I've kind of fortified myself where I compete against, I do compete with Wall Street a little bit. I do compete with, you know, the national brands with the caveman and everything. But I've kind of, I've kind of positioned myself in a way where I have an advantage. And so, it, it, like, what did I learn? I learned know your limitations and figure out where your strengths will allow you to exceed your expectations and, and maybe your skill set mm -hmm. and work your ass off. Like, if you do those things, sky's the limit. Did you anticipate early on when you made that move that you were eventually going to go out on your own? People that knew me told me at five, I would probably, they, they said since I was five, they knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. Um, I didn't, I, I mean, I was scared of it and I mean, I'm still scared of it every single day, but um, here's the nice thing. If you have money and you make the right moves, like life is a long game. If you've ever read Snowball, which is the book about Warren Buffett's life, things start to get easier over time. If you make a, if you make a series of good decisions, over time, it gives you options. Mm -hmm. Owning 200 rentals, like if I ever need a couple hundred grand, I just refinance yeah. something. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not like I have no worry in my life, but I've given myself a lot of good options. Yeah. And the other thing I've done is I've delayed gratification. Yep. I, I haven't taken, like if, you know, I can make a couple million dollars a year, but I don't need that. I live on much less. And what I do instead is I live on, you know, 180 and I keep everything I possibly can because it gives me more options long-term. Yep. So I, I mean, I live, if you know me, I like expensive wine, I travel, but I have a reasonable mortgage. I own a reasonable car and I just have reasonable things with a couple of splurges and I just own a bunch of stuff because it gives me a chance to have a great life. Yeah. That's so good, man. There's not many 20 year olds. I think that would have made a million dollars flipping three houses who would have been smart about it. a lot of 20 year olds would just blow through it. But the fact that you turn around, you reinvested in your business and launched your business. And then over the last so many years, you've basically, like you said, you've created a hedge around yourself where they're not that there's no worries, but you're, you're sort of taking care of, you could probably stop working right now. You've built enough, accumulated enough wealth in your life that you could live on that if you had to, not that you would, but that's smart. I mean, it's long, it's long-term thinking. It's like you said, it's a delayed gratification. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I mean, there's a story from that same era. I got my first bonus check it was 1750 bucks and I took $1,500 and I went and bought stock. I bought stock in the company that I I worked for. It was called the company's Ryan Holmes or NVR. And uh -huh. that stock was trading at like 38 bucks a share. And it immediately crapped. It went down to like $30 a share. I was like, oh crap. <laughs> but I just parked it there and I left it there. And the first investment property I ever bought 
that stock had run from $33 a share when I bought it to 850 in like eight years. Holy cow. I, I took out my $1,500, which was 85 grand. And I went and bought an apartment in Arlington, Virginia. I flipped it and I made, I don't remember the exact number, but I do remember that was when I sold that stock for the first time and I parlayed it into, um, into my first, in, that was my first investment flip that I didn't live in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Frank, unbelievable, man. I think I, I have a feeling we could sit here and talk about a lot of deals that you've done that would inspire a lot of people. I love the fact though that it's the very first deal that you did, it was one that you lived in we're able to, I mean, again, kind of above your means, you scraped, you hustled, you figured out how to make it work. You made 50 grand on it and that launched everything. I think that's a yeah. really, really cool story. Frank, I appreciate you coming on today, man. This was fantastic. My pleasure, Ken. Good to talk to you. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Take care. Hey, Deal Farm listeners. If you haven't heard, I just recently released a book through Bigger Pockets Publishing called Profit Like the Pros. If you dig the Best Deal Ever podcasts, you will definitely want to get your hands on this book. I take 25 stories from some of the top investors in the country and distill them down into 25 separate chapters that will not only entertain you, but educate and inspire you in all different facets of real estate investing. From wholesaling and flipping to self-storage, multifamily and commercial, we get into the details of short sales, subject twos, and even land flipping. And whether you're a brand new investor or you have years of experience under your belt, I promise you this book will engage you. If you would, take a minute, go to Amazon and order this book, Profit Like the Pros. And if you like it, please leave us a review. Thanks so much, folks, and I will see you on the next episode of The Deal Farm.